Welcome to the Nature Reliance Podcast, where we explore the history and practical experience of the great outdoors and discover new ways to connect with nature. I'm Craig Cottle, your guide through the fascinating world of natural living and survival skills through experiential education and interviews. Today's episode is brought to you by the Nature Reliance School Online Membership, an immersive online learning experience designed for outdoor enthusiasts just like you. Are you passionate about the outdoors? Do you crave more knowledge about disaster readiness, wilderness survival, bushcraft, tracking, and nature awareness? If so, the Nature Reliance School online membership is your gateway to a community of like-minded individuals, all dedicated to learning and sharing essential outdoor skills. With the Nature Reliance School online membership, you get exclusive access to a wealth of resources, including expert-led tutorials, interactive webinars, and a library of engaging courses, downloadable books, and documents. Whether you're a beginner or an experienced outdoorsman, there's always something new to learn. So don't wait. Click on the link below to join the Nature Reliance School online membership today. Embrace the wilderness, enhance your skills, and become part of a community that values nature as much as you do. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Hey everybody, this is Craig Cottle, Director of Nature Reliance School for the Nature Reliance Podcast. Many in the Nature Reliance School community of folks know that I, in particular, have a big fanboy status with Hill People Gear. Man, I love their gear. It's made in the USA and it's fantastic stuff. I contacted some of the guys out at Hill People Gear to get on the podcast to specifically discuss hunting in that part of the world because it's kind of a foreign concept to me here in the eastern woodlands of the U.S., So Casey Gorsett, who is an ambassador for Hill People Gear, and Kevin McDowell, who is the director of marketing, came on, and we've got quite a range of discussion going on on gear, terrain, weather, and all the things that go into hunting on the western slope of the Rocky Mountains near where they are. The beautiful thing is, is that Casey is a well-experienced and spent a lot of time doing this sort of thing, and Kevin's rather new. And so you get different perspectives to see how they look at this concept of hunting and conservation and stewardship. And without a doubt, we get into some of the fandom that I have with Hill People Gear, how to use their equipment to better equip yourselves for backcountry travel. So enjoy Casey and Kevin. All right, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having us, Craig. Yeah, Kevin, it's good to talk to you again. Casey, go ahead. Yeah, appreciate you uh, bringing us on. Yeah, man. My understanding is you all are open to talking about hunting, right? Oh, yeah. So yeah, I'm yeah. down for that with whoever, whenever, quite frankly. So, yeah, glad to have you guys on. So uh, if you don't care, gentlemen, the listeners know uh, everybody at Nature Blind School is big fans of Hill People Gear, but we don't know a whole lot about you individuals that make up Hill People Gear and, and what roles you play. So if you don't care, go ahead and tell everybody a lot of things, if, if I think we have the time for, if you can tell them some of your background and how you got to where you are now, and then talk about your role now and what you're doing. And specifically as it relates to hunting, we'll get into that here in a little bit more in detail. If Kevin, if you want to lead us off. Okay. Yeah. I am Kevin McDowell. I am the marketing director for Hill People Gear. I was raised in the Mojave Desert of Arizona. Uh, before that, I lived in, in the Mojave Desert of California. And then my dad retired from the Marine Corps and decided he liked uh, the Arizona side of the Mojave better, wanted to get out of California. Um, yeah. So raised there, 
most of my childhood until my late teens, I moved to Long Beach, California, and that's where I, I joined the Marine Corps. From there, I was uh, loading bombs and missiles on the F-18s, uh, did a deployment there uh, on, on an aircraft carrier, uh, got back from that, got on a, a small team of, of 12 guys uh, as a combat advisor and deployed to Iraq, uh, working with Iraqi police. And after that, I, I got out of the active duty and went to college for forestry and natural resources. Oh, nice. Yeah. But while doing that, I went into the Marine Corps Reserve and that's where I became a forward observer. So that means you're uh, observing for artillery and, and naval gunfire. Did that for a few years while I was in college. And uh, as soon as I could, I, I got a job for the Forest Service. Did a bunch so of did things you deploy the... as a forward observer as well? No, I did not. Um, so yeah, I went to the Forest Service and my career there was kind of as varied as the Marine Corps. And uh, yeah, I worked uh, doing fire, uh, fuels mitigation, also uh, a lot of timber work, worked in Colorado and Oregon. And then I worked on a hotshot crew uh, with Casey, you know, fighting fires around the West. And uh, yeah. And then when you say timber manage timber work, what were you doing? Was it like cruising and, and marking timber or I mean, yeah. So there was, it was there was marking timber cruising, you know, and just kind of just setting up uh, timber sales, uh, you know, mapping out the, the, the timber sale boundary, figuring out how much wood, uh, you know, they're going to get out of that sale and everything like that. Right. Is that where you use the prism and you look at the, through the prism oh, yeah, and yeah. figure it out 10? Yeah. All yeah, that kind of stuff. That. Casey. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are. So my name is Casey Gorsett. I'm a brand ambassador for Hill People Gear and a current wildland firefighter. So that's my day job. And I uh, help out the Hill People Gear folks with brand ambassador work. I grew up on the Western Slope, Grand Junction, Colorado, which is where Hill People Gear is based out of. So I uh, spent my childhood. Um, very fortunately, my parents uh, took me out uh, camping, hunting, hiking a lot. That's uh, all we did. So uh, growing up in the, the mountains of Western Colorado, just uh, getting out there and staying active. Uh, I won't lie. I was maybe a little... Uh, you know, remiss when I was 12 years old, because every long weekend we have, you know, my friends wanted to go ride bikes and my parents are like, nope, we're going on this trip or we're going into the mountains. And uh, now I look back on that and think like, man, I was fortunate because it really taught me a lot. Uh, after, um, well, uh, I stayed in uh, the Grand, Grand Valley, Grand Junction area for college. And I studied environmental science with a emphasis in ecosystem restoration and fire ecology. In the summers, I would work for the Forest Service uh, doing trail work and uh, fire uh, on a per-need basis. And once I discovered fire, I kind of realized that that was uh, the direction I wanted to take my career, um, kind of the path I wanted to take. So uh, I continued to uh, work in fire. And when I finished school, I got a job on uh, the San Juan Interagency Hotshot Crew, which uh, is, I had met Kevin previously working on a district um, on the San Juan National Forest, but uh, we worked together on the Hotshot Crew. Kevin had this crazy idea that summer that, you know, maybe he was done uh, swinging a tool and wanted to do some uh, work in the outdoor industry. And so he took a chance and uh, I drove him up to Grand Junction and he stayed with me for the weekend on some off days and he 
interviewed for Hill People Gear. And yeah, that's how Kevin and I became friends. So I might have cut you short, Kevin, because I think I knew what was the next step. But right after you were doing that work, you went straight to Hill People Gear. That's correct. Yeah. 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 Okay. And what did you start off with Hill People Gear doing? So I started off as the operations manager and I was actually Hill People Gear's first full-time employee. So that basically meant I did most of, you know, all the, you know, all the shipping, yeah, all the shipping, all the, you know, answering the phone calls, answering the emails, um, doing the production management and everything like that. You know, and as the company grew, uh, we hired more employees and, um, and now I became the uh, marketing director and that's what I'm doing now. You know, a lot of the photography and videography, you know, parts of it. Both of you guys mentioned hot shots, and that's something that I think a lot of people in, in my neck of the woods here in Kentucky really just know that from movies. And we really don't know what that's about. Would either one of you care to tell us more about that or, and what that's all involving? Yeah, Casey, go ahead, please. Yeah. So uh, an interagency hotshot crew um, is a 20-person firefighting crew that specializes in only wildland fires. And uh, what sets hotshot crews apart um, from other 20-person crews is that they uh, train together and they stay together all the time throughout uh, an entire fire season. A lot of uh, 20-person crews uh, are kind of a a mash together of a bunch of different firefighters from around a certain region or area. And a hotshot crew is uh, specialized and they, they, they do what they do very well. Um, so you have a very um, regimented like um, system and hierarchy chain of command. And uh, it's very dynamic yet um, consistent. So like you'll have like the same saw teams uh, working together all year long. You'll have the same uh, digging groups working together. And uh, that just uh, makes for a very efficient, well-oiled machine. So they definitely do the, the lion's share of work on wildland fire incidents throughout the West. And um, to speak more to the East um, Coast side, um, in addition to being on San Juan Hotshots, I was with the Asheville Hotshots for a season, and they're based out of North Carolina. And so same principle, um, we were together for the whole season and we traveled around the Southeast uh, doing different uh, prescribed fire uh, and when needed wildland fire operations in the South. So there are a few hotshot crews out East and um, the lion's share of that work is going to be prescribed fire and burning, which um, I will say people have that uh, definitely down in the East and the Southeast. We could definitely take a page out of the book of how much the land is burned, I think, out East compared to the West. The Daniel Boone National Forest is basically my back door. So there's been a lot of back and forth on how to utilize that here in the Daniel Boone. And I mean, even when I was, I'm 50, getting ready to be 53. When I was a kid, just prescribed burning was not a thing at all, at all. You know, everybody was scared to death of it, but it became such an obvious scientific fact that it's needed, um, particularly watching what happens to a lot of you all out there. I mean, some of that stuff gets going and just doesn't stop. Prescribed burning mm-hmm. seems to be a, a, a really key component of making that not happen. Am I correct in my assessment with that, guys? We'll be back after a quick break. Hey, guys and gals, a quick break in our episode to talk about a game changer in outdoor cooking, the Fire Maple Backpacking and Camping Stove System. Whether you're hiking, fishing, or even prepping for emergencies, this portable pot and jet burner 
is a must-have in your gear. Best part, it's nearly half the price of a comparable Jetboil stove system. Thanks to its leading heat exchange technology, you'll experience reduced boiling times by up to 30% compared to traditional stoves, even in windy conditions. That means more time enjoying the outdoors and less time cooking. Are you ready to upgrade your outdoor cooking game? Click the link in the description now to grab yours. Trust me, your outdoor adventures will never be the same. Yeah, de- definitely. Um, you know, we're, we're, what we're doing is we're, uh, we're dealing with a, uh, a century of uh, mismanagement in fuels uh, treatment, essentially. Uh, yeah, we're not, we're not uh, logging as much as we used to, which plays a part, and uh, not putting fire on the landscape or letting wildfires do um, their natural thing on the landscape. The way uh, I like to describe it to folks is that we uh, have gotten really good at putting out all the fires that are lower intensity that we can control, and we're not... Um, we the fires that are you know going moving super fast or in a really really messed up fuel scapes that haven't seen fire in a hundred years, we can't catch those fires. So those are the ones you're seeing on the news. Um, but we're catching and putting out all the ones that are actually doing like good on the landscape. So, um, yeah, it, the the big thing is like trying to turn the corner into uh, realizing um, you know and recognizing when we can uh, let fire do its natural thing. Right. You mentioned, I think you mentioned this actually, Casey, before we got on, you live there with the other teammates 10 months out of the year, two months out of the year, you're off. Is that correct? In the the crew I was on in the Southeast, uh, yes, we we all stayed together in a barracks together. But uh, like the, the crew that Kevin and I were on, everyone kind of uh, lived in the community separately and then would come together and work every day. So Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. All right, guys, I'm going to get into some hunting stuff. Does that sound good? Sounds good. All right. So here in Kentucky, I haven't had the need to shoot at a white-tailed deer over 50 yards for the last probably 30 years. If that'll give you an idea of the style of hunting that we're used to here. I mean, if you know how to hunt here, you can get right on top of deer and you don't have to take those long shots. A lot of people still do, but out there, it's a whole different animal in that neck of the woods, correct? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I'm really interested in hearing about like the terrain there, what you all have to deal with as far as getting to the animals, you know, the weather patterns that you deal with, regulations and all that kind of good stuff. If you all want to get into that, particularly the terrain, if one of you all want to speak to that first. Yeah. I mean, the, the terrain is, is mountainous. You'll have long distances that you can see. Um, and sometimes you, you don't. I mean, you have a, a big variety of the terrain. You know, you got canyons, you got mountains. And yeah, you're going to, you're going to have to spot elk from, from far away and, and, and move in closer to them as close as you can. So do you do uh so we're hunting. Okay. What are we hunting out there? Are we hunting elk sheep? Do you do you guys hunt sheep? Yes. Um, there are uh, Rocky mountain and desert bighorn sheep tags available every year in Colorado. Um, however, they take a long time to uh, draw. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's a, it's a once in a lifetime type deal. Uh, yeah for either one of those or yes uh, there's there's different regulations for desert versus rocky mountain um is like rocky mountain you get weighted points every year that you like increase your chance year by year and desert is like uh um everyone gets their name in the hat once type of a deal so that's for sheep um some another uh species that's similar to sheep would be uh, a mountain goat 
And uh, uh, Kevin and I actually went on a mountain goat hunt that he filmed for Hill People Gear uh, in 2019. So that tag was, uh, it took me 13 years to get that tag. What about elk? Is it easier to get your elk tag then? Yes, you can, you can hunt elk every year in the state of Colorado. It just depends on what unit you want to hunt. Uh, some units are, um, they take more points or time or years to draw for a certain elk unit. And some elk units you can hunt every single year. So the balancing act is saving preference points to go on a quality hunt at some point in the future while uh, still giving yourself an opportunity to go into the field and uh, hunt elk with the hopes of harvesting one every year. So it's kind of a, it's a balancing act and it's a, yeah, I kind of, I, I nerd out on it quite a bit. So I help out <laughs> um, a lot of uh, my friends with that. So you said, when you say uh, holding or gathering those points for a quality hunt, are you talking about, okay, I have a, on this unit, I'm going to have a better opportunity to get a quality uh, bull elk. Is that what you're referring to me as a quality hunt? Pretty much. And uh, it doesn't have to be necessarily for a bull. Um, obviously the bull tags and the quality units take more points um, than the cow tags in those quality units. But if you want a quality elk hunt, you can go on a quality cow elk hunt um, at the expense of, you know, maybe a point or two, but you just want a quality experience where you're seeing more elk and less people. Um, that's kind of what you're paying for with those points is more elk, less people. It gets very busy out here in like the, the general over-the-counter um, units. So Over-the-counter units are just your typical person buying it, literally an over-the-counter tag? Yep. going to, You could go to Walmart the day before season and pick one up. How often do you guys have to deal with out-of-staters coming in and doing that as well? Oh, man, Kevin's laughing. Constantly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's more out-of-state people that we run into than in-state people. Is that because they don't know what they're doing and you run into them or is it because there's just that they're that numerous? They're, they're that numerous. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, every once in a while, we're like we're running to people who are from Colorado or uh, or the general area. Um, a lot of the a lot of the people typically come from the Midwest uh, and a lot from Texas as well. So. So the I guess it, like everywhere, as far as regulations, you can on these units, which is that BLM land. See, that's something we don't have here either is BLM land. BLM and forest service. Okay. Okay. So those are two separate, forest service, yeah. two separate entities. So when Casey, when you mentioned unit, you have a certain acreage that you can go, okay, Casey's hunting this as well as X amount of hunters. And then this unit over here has X amount of hunters too. Am I correct on that? Yeah, that's, that's a good way to relate it. Like an acreage or a, you know, plot. But for us, it's uh, it's it's really it's giant landscape scale units. So it's like this river is your eastern boundary, this river is your northern boundary, and then this highway or interstate is your western, and so, and the state line is your western, or you know. So these are like huge landscape scale units. There's give or take. There's around a hundred, maybe a little more, plus or minus units in the state of Colorado. So um, they're, they're usually divided up by um, uh, logical and um, like geologic features like rivers, um, river drainage systems, uh, continental divide, things that separate the herds because the whole idea behind the management practice is that if you're hunting a herd inhabits this uh, drainage system or this specific ecosystem that's you know, broken up by these major geologic features, 
that's a herd that is somewhat protected for that that special hunting that you wait for. Okay. Because this buck is going to service all the cows or a buck. I'm sorry. Talking deer here. Um, these bull, this, this bull might service these cows in this particular drainage here. And, and that bull is over there kind of thing. Is that, am I thinking about that correctly? Kind of. Yeah. It, I guess like the idea behind it would be that if you could just, uh, you know, grab an over the counter tag and hunt right over a ridgeline from a really good unit that might make it to where you're hunting those out from that good unit. So to the best of their ability, the state has divvied up and split up the units um, in order with quality um, and try to keep those herds that work these, you know, very large river drainage systems as a herd. And that's how they also manage and, and track the population. So the state of Colorado has like the White River herd, um, the Book Cliff herd, the San Juan herd, and those herds are managed independently as their yeah migration and their livelihood kind of takes place in these specific larger areas. So how much of a role does uh, state wildlife officials play or is it all federal? All state. So North American wildlife model, a uh, state owns and manages the wildlife. Well, the public, the, the residents of the state own the wildlife. The state agencies manage for the wildlife. However, the lion's share of the hunting out West is going to take place on public lands. So where do they get their funds? I mean, are they still getting their funds from tag and, and license sales as well as, you know, the federal programs that come down as well, I guess? Yes, li- license sales. That is that is actually where, so the state actually has to balance a budget, unlike the federal government. So they, yeah, they, they, um, they take license sales and that's how they manage the wildlife and decide how many of a given species are going to come out of a certain unit on any uh, you know, yearly basis and how the seasons are going to be set up. So the state manages all of that. However, and I can just speak to this be, you know, because I, you know, work for the Forest Service, um, there, the Forest Service wildlife managers do have a seat at the table when it comes to wildlife management. However, they're not the ones implementing the management. Right. Okay. State has to make that happen. Because mm-hmm. they're keeping all the data too. I mean, they're collecting all the data. I mean, I'm sure there's a check-in procedure where they're collecting how many animals are harvested and how many bulls versus cows and what have you. So it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like elk's the elk's the man when it comes to what everybody's wanting to hunt out there. Is that would that be correct? Well, there's mule deer as well, and uh, we went on uh, a high country mule deer hunt Casey's this this last season. So there, there's plenty of people coming out here to hunt deer as well. Definitely the lion's share is for elk, and, and that just has to do with the tag availability because elk is the only species in Colorado that you can go to that sportsman's warehouse or Walmart or whatever and just buy your license for hunting certain units with no caps to the amount of hunters. So that's why it's very busy because you can come from out of state, go right to the store, pick up an elk license for a bull elk over the counter and go out to a unit that allows over-the-counter hunting and hunt elk. So that's why the lion's share is for elk. But Kevin is right that there are people who um, are coming to the state to harvest or hunt many other game animals. I think the thing with elk, too, is that it's it's not common in these other parts of the country, you know, where they have deer as well, you know, and most places in the country. Yeah, here, uh, here in Kentucky, I don't know if you guys are aware of this or not, but we have the largest uh, herd of elk east of the Mississippi. 
yeah, in Kentucky. Yeah, I was aware of that. And when my daughter, my daughter's 25 now, when she was, I think, 20, or I mean, when she was three, I took her to the elk release 20 years ago. We released like seven or eight elk, and now we have this real that we have a huntable herd. It's fantastic. Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation played a big role in that, and and finding donors, and it's been a fantastic success here in Kentucky. I've never been drawn. It's one of those things. A lot of people in Kentucky uh, moan and groan about not getting drawn for the hunt. It's but it's it's still it's like ten dollars to put in for a tag, and then they draw to kill X amount of animals each year. So it's a fantastic program. And to bring it full circle, um, th- like getting a sheep tag in Colorado would be like the the equal of getting that elk tag in Kentucky, kind of same deal. So we're looking at elk, we're looking at sheep, we're looking at goat, we're looking at mule deer. What's a, it, I, I honestly, quite frankly, sorry, I don't know the difference between a black tail and a mule deer. What's the difference? Or is there a difference that the same animal? Yes. So blacktail is a subspecies of the mule deer, uh, similar to how coos deer um, that live down in the Sonoran Desert in Arizona and Mexico are a subspecies of whitetail. So they are like very closely related. It's a small, minute genetic differences due to population isolation. Um, and that's, that's the difference between a blacktail and a mule deer. What am I missing there? Big game out of what I just mentioned. What else you got out Moose. there? Moose, really? Moose, no, yeah. honestly, I did not know that. Pronghorn antelope, or well, antelope would be the common name. Pronghorn, the more po- proper name, and uh, bear and turkey. Okay, black bear. Yeah, black bear. So you don't run into browns and urals on the western slope. Again, we're talking about the rest western slope of the Rocky Mountains, right? There are no grizzlies in Colorado, so there are no brown okay. bears. Um, there are, you know, color phase black bears that can be cinnamon color, brown color, but they're all black bears by species. All right. So you got it all is what you're saying, boys. I like it. I was talking to Ken yesterday and he's like, Craig Cottle, you got to get yourself out here. And I'm the more I talk to you all, the more I realize I really do. Yeah, you really do, man. So do you all engage in all of that? I mean, you guys have hunted bear and antelope too, or is that uh, also another hard, difficult tag to get? So Casey has, has really grown up hunting and and hunted a lot of these things. And for me, I've only done elk hunting. Uh, and Casey kind of brought me into the fold of doing that. I mean, obviously I've been on his, you know, mule deer hunt, been on his um, mountain goat hunt. Uh, but for myself, I have yet to only hunt elk. Uh, but Casey, he's he's been doing this kind of his whole life and and working up the points to, to get a lot of these animals collecting points on all of them. Is it work on all species like that, Casey? I mean, bear, pronghorn or whatever. Oh, wow. Okay. Everything, everything has points associated with it. So, so how do you get these points? So it takes a year to get a point. So the way that it works is you, when you go to put in for tags, you uh, can put in for points in addition to licenses you want to be drawn for. So kind of got to play the system a little bit, but so, you know, Kevin kind of brought it up. Uh, I was really lucky. Like my, my father had the foresight to put in uh, points for me, you know, when I, you know, starting as soon as I could, when I was 12 and that's how I was able to draw, you know, a, a mountain goat tag at 25 years old. Not many people hunt mountain goats when they're 25, but <laughs> I, I got lucky that my dad had the foresight to put in for all these points for me as soon as I was like really young. So, um, and it, like last year I hunted pronghorn, you know, that takes uh, 10 to 15 years to get drawn in a West slope unit. Um, super, really fun hunt. I love pronghorn. Um, 
It's just, just an amazing animal. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's all about managing your points, uh, what hunt you want to do every year. And so like when we're doing our pre-hunt planning, for instance, like, uh, it's a lot of conversations with, uh, Kevin, um, my family, other hunting friends, and like trying to figure out like, okay, who's got so many points that they could draw this tag. When's that going to be okay. So let's do that hunt. Let's try and not do like, let's deconflict our hunts so that we can go on as many hunts together as we possibly can and maximize our opportunity while being there to hunt with one another. And then like thinking about the future, like three years down the road, where am I trying to hunt a uh, mule deer in three years? Um, where am I trying to hunt elk in five years? It's, it's a, it's quite the, you know, it takes, it takes some work, but it's, it's definitely worth it. If you can put in all that, that uh, knowledge and effort into making that happen. All right. So let's say Casey wants to go bust a, a big bull elk and he's going to use some of its points for that. Kevin, if you go with him, but you're not carrying a firearm, are you still a hunter? Are you still using points to do that? How does that, it's just the person that harvests the animal? Yeah, it's only the person who harvests the animal. Uh, you know, I can go along with him and, you know, help glass and all that stuff and help them, you know, process the animal and, and pack it out, you know, and, and that's what I do a lot of the times, you know, if it's not my hunt or um, sometimes we have a tag together, you know, where we're both hunting at the same time. Uh, and at that point it's, it's, uh, you know, one or the other goes first basically. So it looks like to me that, um, you could go solo, but man, this could be a great, this is a great team effort kind of thing too. a couple guys, three or four guys, even maybe. And that's a big part of it. For, you know, I, I don't see really an appeal for me to go out there doing it solo because a lot of it is the camaraderie, uh, of tackling a mission together. I bet the camaraderie of carrying that puppy out together is a, is a nice thing to have a boy, your boys with you when they're, yeah. when that happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So what tastes the best you all elk, bear, pronghorn, mountain goat, sheep. For me, it's elk. Yeah. Casey. I, I love elk. I, I can't honestly say as I've had any wild game that I've like disliked. Um, to me, pronghorn antelope is really, really good. That is yeah, good. just pr- Pronghorn's really good. Yeah. And, and I've, I've become a deer fan in recent years, just due to the, uh, just the amount of opportunity nationwide. Like as I've branched out from, uh, I don't only hunt in Colorado now, you know, I hunt in Texas and I've hunted in, uh, the Mexico, the country, and I hunt in Arizona and I have plans to hunt in other Western States and other Eastern States. So, um, deer has definitely become my bread and butter for filling the <laughs> freezer for sure, because it's just so abundant nationwide that there's so many tags and, uh, I'm, I'm a whitetail fan, man, for, for a Western hunter, I gotta say, like, since I've been harvesting whitetail the last three years, I'm, that's my trip to the grocery store every year, man. I love whitetail. We're hurting in my house. If we don't kill five every year, I mean, that's, that's our goal is to kill five every year between me and my son. And, um, and that's, that's our primary red meat through the year. So yeah, man, I've been doing that since I was a kid. I love some whitetail, but I've had elk one time and I'm telling you, man, that was the best wild game I've ever had. And I don't know if it was just that, that, you know, I was living off the land, eating elk meat in a cave when that happened. So I don't know if it was the situation that made it taste so good or if it was just that good, but it was good, man. I, I, it's that I'll good. Never, yeah. I'll say it's that good. It's hard to, you know, once you start eating like elk burger and stuff, you know, once you get cow burger, 
it's a beef. It's it just doesn't seem the same. It's not as good. I've told people for years and I, and I, I'm not just saying this to try to encourage people to become hunters, but once you eat a fair amount of wild game, what a lot of people criticize and say is the, is the gamey taste is actual taste. In my mind, beef doesn't have taste. It just blah. I mean, just wild game's got taste. It's got flavor. I mean, it, it's, it's a good, it's a good red meat, man. It's good stuff. Yeah. To me, there's, there's not much difference between, um, uh, you know, ground beef and like, uh, some of those newer ground tofus and stuff that are coming out. It, it really doesn't taste any different to me, but wild game, like you said, it has flavor. People might call it gaminess, but man, I, I've, I've had the, the, the pleasure of introducing like so, so many people to their first wild game, um, like culinary experience, like eating. And, uh, I, I haven't had a bad customer yet, man. I'll just tell you what, maybe I just know how to cook it, but they, people love it. Oh man, that's part of the nature. Uh, you know, our school experience, we, we have some sort of deer meat every class. And the whole goal from my perspective is to get people hooked on hunting, because I think people think they, they fix some deer meat that some guy didn't take care of in the field. They don't know how to process it. They don't know how to take it out of the field. Right. And, and, uh, it just doesn't taste good. But when somebody that cares for the animal takes it, harvests it properly, field dresses, it gets it out of the field and then takes the time to fix it. Right. You're hooked, man. Yeah, I think that's most people's negative experience is exactly what you said is the, the people that they got it from did not take care of it in the field. Right. So, um, all right, let's start getting into some of this gear. Okay. Because you all have got to hunt in a totally different manner than like I do. I can shoot short distance. I shoot, I, I, I don't anymore, but I used to use a lot of recurve bow hunting, real short shots, you know, 10, 15 yards. You guys got to have optics to scan rifle. I mean, I know there's bow hunting and everything out there too, but mm -hmm. tell me about the rifles. Tell me about the gear that you're carrying, how you go about, you know, snowshoes and skis and all that stuff. How does that play out? You know, so every year, um, Casey and I usually do a backpack hunt. So that means that we actually backpack in away from wherever our cars are parked and, you know, and set up a camp and we'll hunt from there. Uh, so you do have to take a larger pack with a lot of gear. It's usually cold, um, so you're going to have to provide for all that. And then you, like you said, you have tripods and, and spotting scopes and, and binoculars and, and a rifle. So it becomes pretty gear intensive. I'd say when you say you're going in, how far are you going in to do that? Kevin, it depends. It depends on, it could be just, you know, a couple miles or it could be five miles and, you know, uh, but you think, you know, the further you get in, the further you can kind of get away from people. But then the further you got to carry all that meat out and all your equipment out as well. So how many, maybe this is, I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself or going back backwards. I don't know. You kill an elk. How many trips out is it going to take you to get all that meat out of there? Depends on how much weight you want to carry each trip. So, <laughs> so how much, seriously, I've never done this before, so I don't know. I mean, I've seen your all's video and watched pictures and I just can't recall all the information. You put that hind quarter of that elk in a pack. Well, number one, can you do that? How much is that? How much weight is a hind quarter? About 75 pounds, give or take. Probably about 75 pounds on a bull elk uh, could be a little more. Um, we're going to be, uh, if we're backpacking, like Kevin mentioned, though, we're going to be deboning that meat. Uh, you know, if you can, you, you get out the same amount of meat and you can leave 20 pounds and some extraneous bulk um, that that uh, hind quarter with the bone in uh, gives you, it's going to make it better. And to answer your question, the one of the, the hardest pack outs I did was with Kevin 
and it was uh, four man trips. So that's him and I with two, you know, one load or two loads a piece. And that's with gear. That's with our gear camp and the elk. So it was like part of the elk and our camp out and then back up the mountain and then one more trip out with the bull elk. And uh, that was, uh, that was, that was tough. We've, that was, we've often, that was the hardest. Yeah. It was a downhill pack out and probably the hardest pack out we've done. So that is because uh, the elevation out there. And that's another thing you all have got bit. You, we've got hills here. You all have mountains. So you all are changing a lot of elevation going from car to up into the hills, up in the mountains to, to pack this guy out. Yes. So like the, the elk that's behind me, I shot that at 11,400 feet. So, you know, we had, and we had to bring that down. So you're deboning that whole hindquarter out and packing out that meat. Uh, is that how it kind of lays out? You kind of got the hind quarter in one pack, maybe the front and tenderloins in another, or, I mean, how's that, how do you all do that? Yeah, it's, it's, um, usually a hind is going to fill like our bone out game bags, which since you're talking about gear, uh, we use the Kuyu bone out game bags, um, you know, with, with great success. If you're boning out, um, if you're not, you know, a different game bag is definitely like the way to go, uh, more of a traditional pillowcase style, but boning out those uh, tend to hold their shape really well you can kind of make it into a uh, rectangle which fits on the frame of our uh, hill people gear decker packs re- really well and it's all about load carriage you know getting getting that that load as as uh, tight and clean as possible to your center of gravity you know so if you, if you kind of have like a sloppy load with or a game bag that's not made for deboned meat it can just kind of end up in a ball which isn't very fun to carry yeah we've done it <laughs> yeah lesson learned a huh? frozen ball of meat yeah <laughs> yeah i can see uh, i know we're going to get into hill people gear here in a minute some of the some of the specifics that you all carry at hill people gear but man if that stuff's rattling around or not cinched to you that's going to be a torture test for your back oh yeah interesting all right what about camouflage is that a big thing it's not as important as people make it out to be it works to some extent you know i don't think you need to wear a camouflage pajama suit basically what about bow hunting do you guys do bow hunting too i do uh to to a very minimal extent i don't uh i don't do it in colorado just because i don't want to use uh, my points and or my my elk or deer tag for that year uh, on archery uh, because it is so difficult and it is it you know takes it up another level but I do bow hunt for whitetail um, but I have a really good friend who uh, Kevin and I have hunted with who bow hunts uh, pretty much exclusively um, for western big game you know Kevin and I were you know, lucky enough to go on a hunt with him a few years ago. And, uh, it's a, it's a nice time of year to be in the mountains. Um, but the, the whole bow hunting part of it gets kind of frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Is the season a totally different season? It's longer and it's earlier in the fall. So yeah, September, which is just September's like, to me, that's the best month. That is the best month in the Rockies. September is just best time to be out. Yeah. All right, guys. What about, uh, I'm assuming that you can't just walk right up top of uh, 11,400 feet with a pair of tennis shoes on, right? So you got to have some sturdy, I mean, are you, are you mountaineering basically, or can you wear hiking boots? I mean, how does that work? So you want a, a, a pretty sturdy hiking boot. You don't need necessarily need a, a full on mountaineering type boot, you know, cause you're not really climbing cliff faces. Uh, but you know, a sturdy, you know, boot with a stiffer sole is what you, what you kind of want. 
Um, most of the, you know, hiking boots from you get from like an REI, a lot of them probably aren't the best for that. They can certainly work it out, but, uh, yeah, you want to shoot for something with a, a stiffer sole for sure. And not just a stiffer sole, but a stiffer upper along with that sole, because if you have a stiff sole and the upper is not stiff, that's going to cause you to, you know, roll your ankle or something like that. It's not as good for side hilling. What's the geology like there? Is there a lot of shale, a lot of limestone? I mean, what, what do you have? What's the walking like there? I mean, I, I saw one of your posts earlier the other day, Kevin. It was, I had a very similar experience when I went and taught man tracking down in Texas, but everything freaking wants to poke you or stick you there. And it's, I think your post said something similar. Everything is sharp, is it sharp rocks and stuff you got to be careful of just walking? Yeah, not, not quite as much as here in, in the, as in the, like in the, where I am now in the Mojave. It's not quite that bad. There are, there are some stuff that'll, that'll stick you and there are some sharp rocks, but not quite as bad as somewhere like a desert terrain. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, mixed, mixed eco type and geological type for sure. Um, we'll go from hunting, uh, you know, high elevation above timberline in September, October to out in the desert in the sandstone country, um, you know, in the canyons like that by, uh, the later seasons. So having footwear, uh, to us, it's like the kind of never ending question and the search for the perfect boot, but it's like kind of hard to find something that can like fit all of those needs for me. Uh, footwear I like, um, there's a lot of really great, what I would call hybrid hiking mountaineering boots um, out on the market now. Um, Scarp, Scarpa makes some great ones. I'm currently running some uh, Soloways. Uh, Crispy makes good boots, uh, Loa, that are kind of that blended mountaineering hiking boot. And to me, that's like my favorite boot um, type I've found in the last few years. Something that you has that stiffness in the midsole um, but as Kevin mentioned, a stiffer upper, um, and it's just kind of a, a blend between the two. And I'm glad that a lot of companies are making those nowadays, because that's definitely the way to go for Western hunting, in my opinion. All right. That, which brings us, I think it makes a good segue. Uh, one of the things that I've always liked for Eastern mixed hardwoods, which is my neck of the woods, is hill people gear, because it's so modular, depending upon the season and what I'm going and doing, whether I'm hunting or I'm just you know foraging for mushrooms or whatever it is that I'm doing. Sounds like it's probably the same thing for you guys, right? Depending upon where you're, whether you're doing high desert or mountain or, you know, you're going in for three days or three hours. I mean, Hill People Gear has a whole different line of this and that to be able to modulate what it is that you need. Yeah. The modularity is, is pretty important. Um, and our Decker pack system kind of nails that. And, and it's something that we've kind of developed over a few hunts, you know, and, um, just the needs that we, that were the things that we wanted to accomplish. Um, the Decker kind of does that. And what it allows you to do is to use a large bag on the, on the pack frame that you can hike in and have all your, you know, your camping equipment and everything like that. Um, and then when you get to your camp, you can kind of switch that main pack bag out to a smaller bag for when you're just day hunting from that camp. Um, so it, it gives you a lot of versatility and options. You know, maybe you just want the medium size bag and that kind of covers your backpack in and your day hunting. The modularity is really the, the strong point, of, especially that Decker pack system. And the Genesis, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, and because and I, I think I understand a little bit of this, but a, a Genesis of a lot of the pack systems at Hill People is based on that fire crew work 
Am I correct on that? Yeah. So Evan Hill, Evan Hill, um, he's one of the owners of Hill People Gear. He was on the Wyoming Hotshots uh, back in the early 90s. So a lot of his experience from doing that type of work uh, goes into his pack design as well. Do you carry Hill People Gear at work too, Casey? Uh, I do. I can say I'm fortunate enough that I do now, um, you know, in addition to, uh, you know, developing or helping develop the the Decker system and what that's become over the last few years. Uh, I got the chance to uh, demo out uh, the t- Hill People Gear Type 1 pack and, uh, you know, make some uh, suggestions to uh, Evan and Kevin uh, to develop what is now the production model Type 1 um, that we've got several crews out West using now. And I got to say, man, it's, it's great. I, I know Kevin wishes he had that pack when he was firefighting. Yeah, that's something I've been kind of bugging Evan about ever started, ever since I started working for the company, you know, because I just came from a hotshot crew. And, and what I use uh, on my uh, free time was the Umlindi pack. And I was telling him, I was like, we need to make this pack into a fire pack, you know, and, you know, four or five years later, we, we actually made that a reality. So, yeah, it's been great. Dude, I'm sick with those things. I ended up, I ended up having about five at one time, and ended up trading them. Thank goodness, so I'm down to a manageable number of Umlindis now. So, but okay, so let's talk about some of the other Hill People Gear stuff that you guys use and work with outside the Decker. I mean, you guys carry your chest kits. Is that something you all utilize or no? Yeah, so uh, we use the Recon kit bag or the Snubby Recon kit bag with the Bino pouch attached to the front. And what that allows you to do, the kit bag allows you to conceal carry a pistol. So you have that option always close to your chest. You take your pack off, your pistol is always on your person. Um, And the front of that bag uh, has the Molly system or the PAL system, um, which allows you to attach certain pouches like a Molly binocular pouch that we sell. And yeah, it's been pretty great uh, using that. Casey, you uh, a kit bag kind of guy too? Yeah, mo- most definitely. Same that Kevin said. Uh, I-, I like the snubby recon. Uh, I've got a smaller profile chest. So to me, like that, that fits me the best. And um, I've kind of transitioned between uh, carrying a sidearm in my kit bag to where now I'm carrying my sidearm on my belt. And then I'm using the kit bag with uh, some internal organization to kind of organize my lens cleaning cloths and elk calls and licenses and just kind of things like that. Um, and uh, rangefinder pouch. Um, it, it's just, it's really, uh, it's really modular and it's, it's nice because uh, once hunting season's done, you know, and maybe you don't want your kit bag set up for um, uh, binos anymore. You can take the pouch off and it still functions as uh, the, any originally intended kit bag would. So to me, I, I like that, that uh, you're getting more than just one product out of a product. Yeah, obviously I do too. I'm a big fan of the kit bags. I use them pretty regularly and I've done the same thing, man. I've kind of transitioned back to, back to my firearm on my belt. I uh, just feel more comfortable that way. There's times where I carry it in my kit bag because that's the, the most gray man way to do it. It's interesting. Sometimes the best thing to do is have a right square in front of everybody and they don't know it's there. So, I mean, there's a lot of times where a bright orange kit bag with a firearm in it is the one that nobody sees is there. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, and that's kind of the thing about the kit bag too, is, you know, out West, a lot of the times, you know, we don't have to really put the firearm somewhere where people can't see it, but um, sometimes it's nice. It's just kind of be polite, you know, you know, you're not 
depends on what kind of trail system you're going on. It's, it's nice to be able to just conceal it. All right. Next subject I wanted to get into guys, is I've noticed and watched your all's films on hunting and a couple other, uh, adventures. Is that something you guys are doing just for fun? Or is that something you're going to kind of do more to add to the business side of what's going on and help people gear? Are you guys doing that on your own or how's all that working? We've been doing it for the business side of, of Hill People Gear, um, but it's also just for fun as well. So, you know, it's just kind of what, we, what we're doing in our lives and um, we're putting that on our, you know, YouTube channel for Hill People Gear. And we plan to do more hunts and, and film them uh, as they come up and, and as they make sense, you know. The, the hunts, uh, what was the last one you just did? I watched this the other day. Oh, it was, uh, yeah, go ahead. You were Yeah, it was my following. fiance's hunt yeah yeah you followed her on her hunt then you did another one too didn't you somebody was just doing adventure is it somebody else that works for the company evan and and ken galbraith did one okay okay yeah that was that was the the last hunting video on the youtube channel and the one previous to that was that i filmed uh was casey and my fiance going on a hunt so yeah good to see the ladies get involved out there too fantastic oh yeah and it was her first hunt and you know she was successful and it was it was a great time she's addicted now it's it's great to see uh yeah her her coming into uh coming into the hunting community it's uh it's really cool and uh yeah we've had two successful hunts with her in the last uh two years so man i've noticed i've done a class last couple years where well i haven't done one for about a year and a half where we do a game processing class and I have, uh, I open it up where we basically kill a rabbit and we kill either a quail or a pheasant or something just so people can, and they, and they, the people that come to class are the ones that kill them and they have to process them and then we eat them and I make sure that they eat good so that they can see the whole process from beginning to end. And man, I'm telling you when I first started that, I was obviously very concerned you got people that have never done anything like that in their life. And now they're engaged in it. And man, I think, I think it's just natural that we're supposed to be doing it. People tap into that and they realize, man, I'm taking care of my own food here. This is good stuff. I, I, I like it. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's yeah. uh, yeah, go ahead, Casey. I know that you were uh, mentioning bird hunting, um, right? Uh, yeah. Do you so all do that thing, too? Quail, grouse yeah. out there? What? Mm-hmm. Grouse. And uh, kind of where I was going to like take that is that, um, you know, uh, sometimes I'll carry a 22 with me uh, when we're out and uh, a couple of times, um, you know, we've, harvested a grouse while out on an elk hunt and then you know gotten to have that like fresh meat in with our uh you know dehydrated meals and it just does it just feels natural it's it's good adds like a little boost and you feel like you're out there like hunting more than just like going out after that exact animal you kind of get this uh you know primal experience over uh you know set amount of days it's pretty pretty rewarding so I'm assuming you've seen Jeremiah Johnson, right, Casey? Oh, yeah. So what you're saying is you're the full-time night woman for Jeremiah Johnson busting those grouse. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> Man, maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Grouse is, we have a roughed grouse here. The R-U-F-F-E-D, roughed grouse. Uh, a lot of people in this neck of the woods call them woods chickens. Um, fantastic bird to hunt. Very, very difficult. It's in hilly country. Uh, as the biologists around here like to say, if you can stick your arms out and not run into a bunch of trees, you're not in grass territory. It's going to be thick as snot to be able to get those birds here. So that's a really challenging bird to hunt here in Kentucky, but I love doing it. All right. The last thing I want to get into guys is the future of Hill People Gear. It looks like you all might be taking a turn back towards the forums and away from social media. Am I reading that right? 
Yeah. So, you know, we're working on our forums, trying to make them a little bit more mobile uh, friendly. And that's kind of like the biggest complaint with the old, you know, the old forums and the Hill People Gear forums is actually where I found out about the company. Uh, I was basically trying to find online a backpacking pack that would seamlessly integrate a day pack that was detachable. And, and that's what Hill People Gear had, you know, was the Ute backpack with the Terra Humera pack attached to the outside. And it wasn't sloppy or anything like that. So uh, I actually discovered Hill People Gear over there from their forums. And um, the thing about the forums is that we control that space. Whereas, you know, we have a, a fantastic group on Facebook, the Hill People Gear owners group. Uh, and there's a ton of information on there. Uh, it's a, the best group on Facebook I have ever seen as far as like, you know, people, you know, adding to the conversation and, and just cutting out the, the nonsense. But Facebook owns that, you know, they could kick us off at any time and all that information's gone. Whereas on the forums, it's there, it's web searchable. You know, you can find these topics through a web search and you can search through the forums and kind of find what you're looking for. So we're going to be doing more with the forums and, and kind of get back to the roots there of the forum. I love the fact that you're going to have more ownership in what it is that you're, is your information. Even if it's shared information from people that are just fans or supporters or whatever Hill People Gear is, we're, we're running in the same thing. I, I was talking to Evan about it the other day, trying to find solutions and, and Shane over at Essie as well. Everybody's trying to figure out how to, how to share information. We've all been in positions where we want to help as many people as we can and not have Facebook tell us how we should or shouldn't do it. Yeah, exactly. Well, this podcast is one other way to do that. I really appreciate you guys coming on. This has been fantastic. Yeah. Thank you, Craig. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of your podcast as well. It's, it's a good quality content. Yeah. Thank you, man. We're, uh, yeah, we're, we've done a whole lot of interviewing in the last two to three weeks. Looks like that's going to be the truck that we hitch a ride to for a while now. It's going really well. You can imagine I get to talk to so many different and cool people. I'm learning a lot, which is always good gaining knowledge as well as just sharing that knowledge with other people. It's been fantastic. What did I miss that we need to discuss before we get out of here? On my end, nothing, man. Uh, I think people know where to uh, go to get some great gear. And they also know a little bit about uh, Western hunting. I'd like to interview you at some point about uh, what you're getting into out east. And maybe I'll make a Kentucky trip at some point. Bring it on, man. We'd love to have you guys anytime, anytime. Love to have you in Kentucky around the campfire. I'll show you how to track deer out here. Love to do that. Yeah, guys. So it's uh, this has been good. Everybody that's listening in, check in on the Hill People Gear forums um until facebook goes away i'll have links for the hill people gear owners group facebook group uh hill people gear website the forums and all that good stuff in the description below so check those out and uh check in with hill people gear these are good folks i've done a lot with evan in the past trained some really cool folks with those guys and uh it's been fantastic talking to you and uh kevin and you casey here tonight really appreciate your time yeah thank you craig all right, everybody. Thanks for listening in to the Nature Reliance podcast. This is Craig Cottle, director of Nature Reliance School, where we always come on, join in, and learn together. And that wraps up another fantastic episode of the Nature Reliance podcast. I hope today's journey has inspired you to explore and connect with the natural world in new and exciting ways. 
Before I say goodbye, remember to check out the Nature Reliance School online membership. If today's episode sparked your interest in wilderness skills and outdoor adventures, this online community is the perfect place for you to start or continue your journey. You can currently sign up for a year for only $99 and get two months for free. Click the link below to discover a world of expert-led courses, engaging content, and a vibrant community eager to share their knowledge and experiences. Whether you're starting your outdoor journey or looking to deepen your existing skills, the Nature Reliance School online membership is here to guide you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe for more adventures and share this podcast with your fellow nature enthusiasts. Until next time, come on, join in. Let's learn together.